Please turn to the book of Joshua. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Joshua 1, 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left in order that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then, Joshua, you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I have not commanded, excuse me, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Father, let the powerful book of Joshua, the historical account of your workings, be applied by Your Holy Spirit to the heart, to the life, and to the battlegrounds in the lives of everyone listening to this sermon. In Jesus' name. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Israel, hundreds of thousands of these people have come to the plains of Moab just on the east side of the Jordan River. Opposite, on the other side of the river, is Jericho. There Moses went up to Mount Nebo and died. And the leadership mantle was passed from Moses by God to Joshua there. So here they are on the other side of the Jordan, just east of it. God now is on the verge of fulfilling the promise that He gave centuries before to give the land of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan predominantly that Abraham walked to the children of Israel. And just as 40 years earlier, God opened up miraculously the Red Sea and Israel passed through it, so He will open up the waters of the Jordan River and let Israel pass through it to the Promised Land on dry ground. I want to pause there for a moment. Why does He do that? They don't have any armies pursuing them like they did 40 years earlier. They're doomed if He doesn't open up the Red Sea. They're not necessarily in a big hurry. They could build rafts the Jordan River isn't a big deal. It isn't like our Colorado. It really is not a very big river. They could build rafts, just ship the people over back and forth, take their time. But he doesn't. 
the book of Joshua gives us, I think, three very concrete reasons why God says, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it this way. First, is that He wanted to show the people of Israel that Joshua is my choice as the successor of Moses. In Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, it says, quote, The Lord said to Joshua, Today, on the river crossing, through it, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, I w- that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Secondly, he wanted to show the people, and especially the men, the soldiers who are about ready to enter many battles, His miraculous caretaking. The God who says, I will give you victory in your battles. He's going to miraculously close up the Jordan so it stops running so they can go across. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that He will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hevites and the Perizzites and the Gergashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. How? By this miraculous happening. Oh, how precious that is in our lives when we see God come through again and again and again. And we go through desert places, but then again there's His faithfulness He's with me. I can hold on to that for the next day. The third reason that God wanted to do this is that He wanted to scare the living daylights out of the enemy. He wanted their hearts to melt. Chapter 5, verse 1, it's clear. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord, Yahweh, had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And so, this is what God does. And to make it clear to the people of Israel that what's going on here in possessing this land... This is a God thing. This is a worship thing. This is me, Yahweh, the God of Moses, the God of the law that I have given to you on Mount Sinai. The way God says we're going to do this is this. Take the worship leaders, the priests. Have them take the most holy piece of furniture in the tabernacle called the Ark of the Covenant. The box! that has inside of it the two tablets, the commandments are written. It is the box for 40 years where Moses entered into the holiest place with the Ark of the Covenant and God spoke to him as a man speaks to a man constantly over the top of that box. God says, have the priest take that Ark go step into the river, and as soon as they do, I will stop up the rivers. And they are to stand in the middle of the Jordan, holding the Ark of the Covenant, while all Israel crosses the Jordan. So that as they cross, they're going to see, that's that box. That's that Ark. That's where God met constantly with Moses for the last 40 years. And so they cross over, and they come to Gilgal where they make camp on the west side of the Jordan. And at Gilgal, all the males who were born after the Exodus were circumcised. Then they celebrated the Passover together. Remember, the Passover is the festival God said to Israel throughout all your generations, you are to keep it every year commemorating my delivering you out of slavery. That night where God struck down the firstborn male child of everything living. And Israel was to put 
and kill the lamb and put the blood on their doorpost so that if they do that, God, the angel of death sent, would pass over their family and their livestock. And they are to commemorate that. They celebrated the Passover. Then the rest of the book of Joshua then tells the story of the conquest. I will use the word on purpose. Of the invasion of all these people groups in Canaan. Just summed up briefly. First, Jericho sacked. Falls destroyed. Then, after that brief little problem with one of the Israelites who disobeyed God, Achan, and thus God caused him to be defeated, after that was dealt with, and he was dealt with, they destroy Ai. And then from Gilgal, over the preceding months, a couple years, whatever it took, they conquered the southern people's kingdoms, in chapters 9 and 10 of Joshua. Then in chapter 11, they conquer the northern kingdoms. If you've got a map of Israel in your head here, in chapter 11. Then, from chapter 13 to chapter 21, we get the dividing up of the land. There are 12 tribes. One tribe is split. Borders, like you see L.A. County, Orange County, something like that. Judah gets this. Issachar gets this. The half-tribe of Manasseh gets on the, this on the west side. And on the east side they get this. And they're setting up borders for those next number of chapters. Then the climax of Joshua, I think, comes in chapter 21, verse 43 to 45. Quote, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. Excuse me. And they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So the book of Joshua, it, it ends with this triumphant note. But there is also a strong hint of trouble ahead for Israel because they left remnants of these godless nations in the land. Chapter 23, verses 11 to 13. Quote, Be very careful, Joshua warns, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Here's that warning. And then we come to the next book in the Bible called Judges. Remember, first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those last four I just, those books there were just 40 year period in the wilderness up to what we see happening in Joshua. Now they conquer the land, God brings them into it, and then the very next book is the book of Judges. Both these books, Joshua and Judges, by the way, are really fun in that sense, thrilling, they're moving, you can make great movies of these books. There's a lot of action 
happening. But at the beginning of Judges, it sets the tone for what's going to happen for the next couple hundred years with Israel, where these judges are leaders that God sets up. Chapter 2, verse 10, book of Judges. And all that generation... The first generation conquering the lands. Joshua now dies too, right? Caleb dies. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, passed away. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, false gods of the Canaanites. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. I want to just pause and give us a mini-exhortation especially as parents. Think about what that just said. The generation that went into the land of Canaan and God constantly fought for them, giving them victory after one city, after one people, after another, miraculously fed them in the wilderness miraculously opened up the Jordan. They finally get the land. They finally get the rest. They finally divide it up. They got their little plots and their little clans. And we got some peace here now. We're in the land. They finally die. And then it says their kids did not know the Lord. They didn't know about His works. The only way I think that that could have happened is their moms and their dads did not tell them. Feed them it. And breathe it. And bleed it into them. That's what I think the text is trying to tell us. And it's a warning to us. Moses said earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Israel, you shall Teach them diligently. That is my word, my laws, my works. Diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. We, parents, it's good to feel, oh, can I do better? Our children grow up so quickly. Can I do better? We should take Psalm 78, verses 5 to 7, and be admonished constantly, lovingly admonished and encouraged. It says, He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. I just Some of us, I'm looking here, I know many of us are the first generation to be Christians in our family. Not that we don't have Christian backgrounds, but I mean, on fire, I've crossed the Jordan. This was personal, not the faith of my father or mother. And it so transformed our lives. And we have also seen, and I've loved to see, and I appreciate it, I meet people in my, my journey as a Christian, in my schooling, that they have generations of faith. Fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers and great-grandfathers and great-grandma. God will be faithful. He will do miraculous works to obedience. I, I remember when I was 20 years old, one of the things that was really just I thought about, I dreamed about, I, I was awed at, wow, what? that would be just mind-boggling, was, was, was this, that 
Even though I was raised going to church, I was not raised in a Bible household. My parents didn't know the Bible. They didn't know anything about the Bible, really. They didn't read it. It wasn't in me. And then God miraculously saved me at age 20. And I remember thinking, one day, God, you may give me a wife. And, and, and children, I thought, wow, what? Children raised with some crazy Jesus freak nut like me? Wow, that would have been awesome if that would happen to me. I thought, wow, what an opportunity. And I don't think I'm throwing it away. We've got to continue to pursue breathing Bible. Breathing the works of God. Letting them know what God did and is doing, but not just that. And the doctrine, the theology behind it for our children. If we do not like what we just read at the beginning of the Judges, we will be preparing our children to serve the bells of our culture and forsake the Lord of Mom and dad we need to rehearse biblical doctrine because it's our life to them and then not only that tell your stories I mean I always think about that I think about age appropriate too I want every one of my kids to know because we're going to be teaching them my eldest is 10 but no we don't want you to be a drunkard in high school we want you to learn to fight and resist such things. We know what it is to go through adolescence. No, I don't want you to be a drug addict. No, I don't want you participating in sex outside of marriage. But I want them to know, I'm your dad. And I was a drunkard. I was a pothead. I did not know this Jesus whom you got to watch your mother and father love all these years and teach you and read Bible to you and have that your main culture above American culture, above Western civilization. It is Bible culture. That is a miracle to you. I want them to know that. I don't want to hide anything that I was or that I did. Nor should we, because we want to proclaim the excellencies and the power and the work of God to them. You are blessed, Alex. These people right here, mom and dad, were not always these people. They were lost souls. And not every one of our children have to go through that exact same experience. So now, that's that mini-sermon. What I want to do, I want to reflect on what we have read here in Joshua as we are in this series of redemptive history, a journey through biblical history. You can't ignore this. I say this, and what I'm going to say is in the context of this. I hear arguments, or at least I don't know if the arguments, statements made by anti-Christian people, anti-Judeo-Christian people. I hear it over the years, often, especially on the radio, on talk radio, especially in the context right now, there are millions probably that would want to and there are thousands upon thousands who actually do live and die for the purpose of murdering innocent people in the name of God. And so, I hear the argument, what's the difference between your Judeo-Christian Bible and Islam? Because Joshua and the people of Israel invaded, unprovoked, other peoples and slaughtered them in the name of God. In the Bible says that. So in response to that, I think, yes. I don't want to be a person who's not real with the Bible. But I want to understand. And I, here's the thing. My ultimate answer will not be accepted or understood by people who do not have a biblical world view. I won't get it. And I know that. 
But I think every Christian ought to have a biblical world view. Here's my attempt. Let me just say a couple things which we're starting from. First is this. The book of Joshua is a bloody book. There's a lot of death in it. There are battles. Secondly, those many battles were an invasion that was unprovoked in the sense that Israel was not being attacked by them. They weren't doing anything to the people of Israel. They were living in their lands and their little segments and their cities. And the third thing is this, or the form into a question. How could that be justified? Especially the way the Bible puts it, that those conquests are a reason for worshiping God. The God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, I'm going to say what I'm saying in this context today. Any nation today that would do what Israel did in the book of Joshua, I, and I hope every Christian, would condemn. If America invaded other countries unprovoked, if Israel today invaded any of their neighbors unprovoked just to take over their land and conquer them, I would be very much against it. So, how are we supposed to understand this in its historical context? Three steps that I put it into, understand and help me. First is this. The period between Moses and Jesus is unique. This is what I mean by a biblical worldview. God wanted and intended to have His chosen people, Israel, to whom He gave the law and was going to write a lesson book to be not merely a religious people kind of existing in the world, but to be a standoutish people with also political and national and borders, land borders kind of form. That's what He wanted One reason, I think, is this. To show, I keep my promises, I give my people land. And here's the worldview that is biblical. And that man's in a worldview will never get it. God is God and He owns everything and He has that right to do with it sovereignly what He will. I give them the land. And that is a picture or a type or a foreshadowing of this greater reality that one day God will give His people the earth. They will inherit from Him all the earth. But also, historically, because God wanted Israel not merely to be a religious people, but to be a national people, that had a land, that had a kingdom, that had an army, that would stick out and make it prominent in the world, in the context of world history. So that the lessons He would be teaching them and through them to the rest of the world when Christ would come would be guaranteed to be known by all the world. And who's this? Where were you guys last 3,000 years? Some little cave over in Africa somewhere? Huh? No. These were the Jews. These were the people that lived in that land. That's what he wanted to do. See, before Moses and after Christ, it's not so. Before Moses, you had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the twelve sons and their family. They were a clan. They had no land. They didn't own any land. They had no nation. They had no king. After Christ, the church is the people of God. And it has no national form. But instead, it's also described as a people who are sojourners. 
But that period in between, which is over, was different. And so, no nation today may claim or presume the right, like Israel had in the Bible, in the book of Joshua, presume the right to execute God's historical judgment on other nations. That's the first point. The second point is this. When you read the book of Joshua and the conquering of these peoples, those military exploits were not Israel's own doing. The book's clear. They were God's orders. And they were God's doing. To the extent where Israel would disobey Him, God would make sure they lost that next battle. That's how the book talks, Christian. It's how it talks. Therefore what? We must conceive that Israel was a weapon in the hands of the Lord. They were the instrument by which God accomplished His historical judgments on those nations. Which, I kind of already said it, brings to the third point. The destruction of Jericho and Ai and the southern kingdoms and the northern kingdoms, the destruction of those peoples, of those nations in Canaan, was not just to make a place for Israel. If that's all it was, it may be unjust. But it was also a judgment on the wicked nations that lived there. Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4-5, to Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust these nations out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into possess this land. Whereas it is because... Moses says, do not say that's why you're there. Don't say that's why God allowed you to destroy them. He says, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your own righteousness, Israel, or of the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. No. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that He may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac, and to Jacob. We put it this way for a second. We have seen the flood of Noah. This is what I mean by worldview. The same people who could never accept that God is the one who brought judgment on mankind during the flood of Noah, justly and rightly, will never accept what I have just said here. But if you accept that, there's no difference. That every people's is not wiped out is not because they don't deserve it. It's pure mercy. And that if God chooses to wipe out Ai, He's just in doing it. Whether He uses a flood, or any other weapon like Israel's men with swords. It's His weapon. It's His judgment. Ultimately, you see, the question, the way it's formed on a radio, is flawed. It assumes there are such a thing in the context of God who's the actor and the judge and the executioner. It assumes there is such a thing as innocent people. 
isn't. It's as far as I'm going to go with that this morning. Now, why is it that reading the battles and the exploits of Joshua's and Caleb's and in the book of Judges has been so inspiring to Christian people? One course I took at Christ for the Nations by Dutch Sheets was called Joshua and Judges. And boy, is there a way? Oh, yeah, I mean, this is not, not rhetorical. This is rhetorical. There is a way, like that man did, to be able to tell and see the stories and have it become so close to home for my own heart and inspiration in battles in my own life as I read about the actual historical battles in God's action there. And I want to cloak it this way, this because it does it does. Here's the question as we look at the historical account of Joshua. Was the conquest of Canaan dependent on Israel's obedience or not? In other words, there's a huge theological lesson that is to be gotten out of Joshua. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul said, Christian, you were chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and the Word. Okay, That sanctification is that process, that battle, the stuff you should be battling every day. Well, here's the question. Is the conquering of those sins, dispositions, in the fight of faith. Remember, Paul said, we fight not against flesh and blood, like Joshua, but against powers and principalities and sin, etc. Is the conquering in your life dependent on obedience I think it's the same question. And this is why Joshua speaks directly to a Christian. This is where the question arises as we read Joshua. For instance, on the one hand, Moses says in Deuteronomy 9.5, listen closely to what he is saying about taking Canaan. Quote, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Not because of that are you going to possess the land? But on the other hand, Moses says in Deuteronomy 6.18, you shall, excuse me, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord in order that he, it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. He says, you better obey me. You better do right for the purpose that you will conquer. Or similarly, God says to Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 7, Joshua, be strong. Be very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. Why? So that you may have good success wherever you go. The way these texts go together, the way that the conquest of Canaan and the conquest of sanctification in our lives happen as this, I think. There will be no victory, no conquest over the nations in Canaan without obedience. God will not fight for those who are fighting against Him. In order to be successful... Joshua and the people of Israel have to be strong in courage, their courage in God, and obey His commandments. But when this happens, on the other hand, when the conquest is successful, then the people may not say, 
It was because of my righteousness. And it was because I was obedient that God drove out the other nations. God, here's why, saw the wickedness of the Canaanite nations long before Joshua was born. God not only saw it, but He had ordained, purposed to destroy them. And He had made His promise to Abraham that He would give Abraham your descendants this land long before Joshua could be obedient or the people of Israel could be obedient. The conquest was decreed. When we say decree, meaning of God, we don't mean what He wished might happen if something. When He decrees, it by definition happens. He decreed the conquest of Canaan long before the obedience of Israel. Therefore, no generation within Israel may presume that we're the ones. We're the ones that were appointed to conquer. If Israel had that attitude, God could just easily say, you're going to die like the other generation in the wilderness until another generation rises up who are trusting in My mercy, who are trusting in My sovereign hand, and who do not trust in any merit of themselves. That's a message that I want to give to my children. I hope you want to give it to your children as we preach the Gospel. Let's burn out pride and arrogance of even being raised in a Christian family and burn out the presumption that, I guess I'm a Christian. Don't let that happen to them. Preach the Gospel to them. Let them know the Gospel of John 3.16. Don't let them trust in anything that would say, because I'm this, thus I'm okay with God. So, say it this way, it seems that there is a sense in which obedience, the obedience of Israel, is the condition of the conquest. And there's a sense in which it's not. It's not a condition in the sense that the conquest of the Canaanite nations had already been decreed And it's also a certain part of the irrevocable promises that God made in the Abrahamic covenant. So therefore, no one down the road, like Joshua or those Israelites at that time, no one could just say, God was moved to do it because of my obedience. Everything is backwards. But on the other hand, obedience, when you read this book, The obedience of Israel is the condition of the conquest in the sense that those who it will be that will participate in that merciful, glorious decree of God, that does depend on them being courageous and being obedient. I mean, the story of Achan in Joshua is a good illustration. God said, sack them all in Jericho. Do not take any plunder. Take anything with you. Don't take their gold and seek their stone. Nothing. One of the soldiers, Achan, gave in to temptation and disobeyed and did it and hid it in his tent. And Israel went out to battle thinking, God, nope, God was against them. Until they dealt with that issue of disobedience. So, obedience of faith in the Christian's life also is the condition for success on the road to sanctification. But never will it allow us to say, the reason I made it is because 
foundationally, bottom line, I acted and God responded. And he got it all wrong again. God decreed long before you were alive to obey, to come to the obedience of faith, that you would possess the land of eternal salvation. Application of the book of Joshua. Oh, how easy it is again today. Because I'm very confident that my application for us is directly from God, the Holy Spirit. Because it's straight from the Holy Spirit's Word through the author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The author is writing to Christian people on this side of the cross, encouraging them to take up their sword of the Spirit and fight the fight of faith, to continue in the faith, to keep going, to keep persevering. When he says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, excuse me, verses 1 through 3, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest, just, he, he's talking about Joshua, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Why? Because good news came to us even today in 2007. The Gospel, good news, it came to us just as it came to them. But the message they heard in the wilderness did not benefit them because they were not united by faith in those who heard. For we have believed, we who have believed, have entered that rest. We've entered the rest of crossing the Jordan into Canaan, is what he just said. And then he goes, quote, As he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And they died in the wilderness. The writer to the book of Hebrews, he's reading Joshua. He notices in Joshua chapter 21, verse 44, for instance, it says, quote, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Gave them rest. Another peaceful, satisfying freedom from assault now. We got the land. And that was part of the Old Testament hope. And here it was at last. But this writer also saw in the book of Joshua, like we already have, and in the book of Judges, that this rest was imperfect. This, this rest, it really wasn't seeming to be a true, lasting rest. He saw that the enemy still remained in the land and soon the people followed false gods, carried away into idolatry. In other words, he sees that the book of Joshua and that Israel possessed the land was not the final fulfillment of the promise which was made to Abraham. Therefore, Joshua's conquest was a partial fulfillment. But it was at the same time a type and a shadow of something much greater, a truer homeland, rest to come. And so the writer sees that and he finds confirmation in another part of the Scripture. Joshua, here we are. Hundreds of years down the road, David comes along. And he reads what David said 
in Psalm 95. Quote, Today, we've got to hear this, hundreds of years after Joshua, this is why I say it's very applicable. If it's applicable, hundreds of years after Joshua, what happened with Joshua? Maybe the Hebrew writer is going to find it applicable to us thousands of years later. He says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. For forty years I loathe that generation. They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known My ways. Therefore I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. And so, this text here implies to the writer of the book of Hebrews that after several hundred years later than what happened with Joshua, the rest is still available in David's day. There's a rest that's available. And so the Hebrew writer says, that's true here in the first century. Christ has even come. Christian! These people who are kind of turning back from the fire that they had at one time for Christ, he's saying, work, strive, be desperate to enter the rest. And so I'll let him say it. Verse 5 and verse to verse 11, Hebrews chapter 4. Listen to his mini-sermon. And again, in this passage, quoting David now, and again in this passage, quote, they shall not enter my rest, he said, since therefore, Christian, it remains today for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, again, way down the line with David, he appoints a certain day, quote, today, this morning, April 20th, 2007. Today, believer, saying through David, after so long afterward of the conquest with Joshua, in the words already quoted, quote, Today, if you hear His voice, do you hear it? I just read His voice. Are you hearing it? Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Because if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His. Let us, therefore, Christian, strive to enter that rest so that no one in church may fall by the same sort of disobedience. End quote. So remember abundant grace. Galatians 3.16 3.7 it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.29 If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to promise. And so that promise is for us of rest. The promise, even the way Jesus said it, here it is, and he means this. I know, Joe, you came to Christ in 1981. No, that, that's a pro- yeah, I did, but that's a promise that is to be ever obeyed. 
I am to strive to hear Jesus say these words. Come unto Me today and I will give you rest. For every believer, there is a foretaste. I use that word very deliberately. There is a tangible, real foretaste today, now, by the Spirit, of the rest that He promises. And then, in the age to come, in the resurrection, is the consummation of it. In the new heavens, in the new earth, the promised land of true eternal rest without sin and pain and striving and crying will come finally. So we should love the historical conquest of Canaan, that God did it, and that He is applying those lessons even today to us believers by His Spirit. Because if, as the, we just saw in the New Testament, if the old, original, historical, military general Joshua was victorious over the enemies of God, how much more will the new Joshua be victorious? Some of you know what I just said. You do know that Jesus means Joshua. It's not a derivative of the name Joshua. Jesus' name is Yeshua. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. In Hebrew, the book of Joshua is Yeshua. It comes over into Greek, then you say Yesu, and it came out Jesus in Spanish, or Jesus in English. But it's the same. This is Yeshua. Jesus. And so we should know that everything about the conquest of Canaan was written for our sake. In order that we might have hope. In everything, as you're reading Joshua, you should see reflected the conquest of Jesus over sin, over Satan, over guilt, over hell. And with that blow of the cross of Christ, we know that the Lord has given us the land. And so in that way, we hear the exhortation of the book of Hebrews, let us, Therefore, strive to enter that rest for the purpose that every Christian sitting in church this morning may not fall away by the same sort of disobedience. Oh, Father, make us Bible people Make us people who want to know Your ways. Your ways which so often are not our ways. Make us a people who are transformed in our minds and in our hearts by Your redemptive purposes. Father, by Your grace, make us a people who are faithful as Joshua was. Father, bring rest. Bring rest of soul. Bring rest to everyone here that comes only in trusting Christ by the power of Your Spirit. Bring rest even though the enemies of unbelief, anxiety, physical ailments, tragedies are all around. May You make us a people who are actively 
desperately waking up every day, striving to enter the rest. In Jesus' name. Amen.